Welcome to the JetRails podcast, supporting you through the airwaves with information about website and e-commerce technology and strategies from design and development to security, marketing, conversion rate optimization, and web hosting. We bring you insights from industry leaders and experts hosted, edited, and published by me, Robert Rand, your friendly neighborhood tech ambassador. Hi, and welcome to an episode of the JetRails podcast. I'm Robert, your host, and today we're going to be talking about acquisitions and more specifically, e-commerce stores trying to be acquired, getting acquired, what that process looks like, uh, what the challenges are, where these things sometimes uh, fall apart or, or where they work wonderfully. And in general, you know, we'll touch on some of these major themes that impact anyone and everyone that's going through the acquisition process or, or interested in it, whether they're a digital agency or a tech company. There's certainly a, a lot of themes um, that come together that we see in the acquisition process. And with no further ado, we've got a great guest with us today. Uh, we've got Joe Valley, um, who actually <laughs> wrote the book, uh, you know, on being an exitpreneur, um, on really being able to not only be an entrepreneur, but having that core strength and focus on uh, building up toward that healthy exit. He runs Quiet Light Brokerage. And um, Joe, would you do the honor of introducing yourself? Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, I'm a bit of an old guy. As you can see, I've got a little bit more gray on my chin than you do. Uh, I've been self-employed since 1997, um, built, bought, or sold over a half dozen companies of my own since then. And I sold my last e-commerce business in 2010, and I did it through Quiet Light. Uh, my business partner was the original founder. I joined the company shortly after uh, and my first full calendar year as an advisor on the team, we did about uh, two million in total transactions. That's 2013, the first full calendar year. We'll probably close about 250 million in transactions this year, and that could jump to well over a half a billion if one giant transaction ends up closing. Average deal size, though, still around two million dollars, or the median deal size, I should say. Um, I. Uh, have a team of 12 advisors on the, on the, on the team. Now, everybody on the team is an online entrepreneur. First and foremost, everybody's built, bought, or sold their own online business. That's a prerequisite. You have to have that experience of having been there and done that to join the team as an advisor. And there's a lot of really intelligent, experienced people out there that have asked to join the team, but have not built, bought, or sold their own online business. And we immediately say, I wish you could join, but no. Because that's who we are. That's what we do. Um, and I, I, I just enjoy what I'm doing. Uh, and I ended up uh, brokering for most of the time uh, here at Quiet Light. And I just got to the point where I could only talk to so many people one-on-one -on -one or at events. Right? We attend a lot of events and speak to a lot of people. Personally, I've talked to about 8,000 entrepreneurs over the last decade one-on-one. -on -one. That's a lot of conversations. And I couldn't duplicate myself uh, anymore. The team are individuals and they are who they are. So the way that I did that, the best way I could find a way to reach more people and multiply myself times 10 was to write a book. And it took me about four years in the process to write the Exopreneur's Playbook. The first two years, I'll be honest, were me just fumbling around, not, very, not getting very far with it. And then I hooked up with a team that helped me really dial it in. It's a company called Scribe Media. And uh, we dialed that in in about two years, got the book published. We launched it in June of this year. And uh, we're off and running, and I'm able to help a heck of a lot more people now understand 
the value of what is likely their most valuable asset, which is their business, and help them reverse engineer a pathway to an eventual exit. It's, it's really a tool for them to um, learn what brings and plummets value in their business and eventually uh, march towards an exit goal. So, um, you know, in a general sense, um, are are you seeing an increase in demand for these kind of acquisitions? I know that right now, uh, you know, interest rates are low. So, you know, folks that have money to invest, that they they want to be working for them, that they want to, you know, be seeing returns grow, whether those are, are corporations that are sitting on cash um, or whether those, those are entrepreneurs or or others, um, you know, that, that they're trying to find creative places to, to invest so that... Uh, you know, they can keep seeing that that kind of strong growth uh, of their cash. Um, is that really playing out in the acquisition space? Yeah, demand's definitely up. We're, we're, we're doubling our, our total close transactions over 2020. Um, we have a bigger team and the listings get larger with each calendar year, but there's just simply more comfort with buying e-commerce businesses. And by e-commerce, I mean content, SaaS, physical products, all of that, even service businesses, um, anything serving uh, products and services online. Uh, there's just so much more comfort with the risk associated with those today than there even was just five years ago. If you go back 10 years ago, what I 11 years ago now, when I sold my business, there was not a ton of comfort with buying an online business, right? It's like, how do you actually, is this going to be real? Is it going to last? And who are these kids doing these things? Are they building real businesses? Well, the world's changed a lot. In the last well, decade. And if I buy it, can I manage it? You know, what, what <laughs> you know, what's it held together by? Because, you yeah. know, so many things were so custom at the time. Yeah, uh, there wasn't much so. as much, uh, you know, as much uniform process. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who's actually doing the purchasing at this point? Um, are, are they large companies that acquire a lot of small and medium businesses? Are they, uh, you know, are, are these more one-offs? Yeah, it's about 50-50, really. Um, if you go back, I'd say even just go back three years ago, uh, it was probably 80-20, that 80% were just one-off individual buyers purchasing businesses. Now, they'd get good at it, and then maybe they'd buy another, a second, a third, or a fourth, right? We've got one individual, we'll call him, that has bought five, but now he's not an individual because he's raised $50 million to buy more, right? So uh, it's, it's about 50-50 today. And it's because uh, of what we, the label aggregator, which is a, a, a label for businesses that have uh, individuals that are very well educated and very well connected, and they've raised a lot of money to buy online businesses. So those are aggregators. And there's probably a uh, hundred or so of them now. And because of their experience and exposure and getting in the news, they're actually driving up the value of these businesses more uh, than what they were valued at even just three or four years ago. So it's a great time as, as, a, as an owner of an online business to, to exit. But at the same time, this trend is not going to end, right? It's only, I think these online businesses are only going to get more valuable and the buyers of them are going to just see more value and the, and the prices are going to continue to climb, you know, at least for the foreseeable future. It's, it's interesting. And I, I think sometimes for a business, you hit a certain plateau. And I, I was reading about it in the book as well, that you get to the point where, you know, this was a great business that helped to allow for a certain lifestyle, a certain freedom of being your own boss, etc. 
but you grow to a point where the business needs so much more attention, um, yeah. whether it's to, you know, because you've hit a certain plateau where you've got to double down in order to hit a next rung of growth or, you know, it, it's just in terms of sustainability, it's already so large that, you know, you can't get it <laughs> for a vacation anymore. You can't leave it uh, that you, you've got these challenges, um, you know, so, you know, I'm actually going to going to twist that a little bit. What do you think the minimum size is for one of these businesses to be interesting to a potential buyer? Uh, you know, because if they're doing, I don't know, you know, some somebody just built up a side gig and built up a brand selling, I don't know, $50,000 a year of, uh, I don't know, drop ship products where they don't really have much there. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's not a lot <laughs> for somebody to be interested in buying there. There's a little bit of brand equity, but not much beyond it. There's, there's uh, still a buyer out there for that, though, Robert. You know, it's people that are just getting started uh, and don't have uh, a half a million or a million dollars to spend on a business. They may want to buy a, a, a fifteen or $20,000 business. You know, that dropship business doing 50000 a year in revenue may have, well, let's say it's good $15,000 in profit, right? 30% or discretionary earnings, as it called. That that business, it might be worth, you know, $45,000, $50,000. It's sellable. It's, it, you just, it's not sellable through quiet light because we've gotten to the point where we kind of have minimums, right? We generally play in the $250,000 to $25 million range. Now, that $25 million, <laughs> there was a point where we were going to say, okay, we're, we're good at $10 million, nothing above ten. And then it got to 15 and 20 and 25. And now a member of our team is working on a $300 million listing. Um, but the minimums, they, you know, every business is sellable. It's just a matter of what you know, somebody's willing to pay for it. Um, back in the day, I sold businesses for as low as $5,000. Um, and occasionally, we'll broker something that's much lower in value, below $250,000 as well. But it's generally because we're working with a client that is targeting a much larger exit. And as part of that goal, they're going to peel off some of the smaller distractions that they have. And in some cases, it might be a, a business that might be worth sixty or $70,000. But they're all sellable. It's just a matter of how much money you can actually get for it. The smaller ones are sellable. The challenge, though, is you know, if, you've, if you've got a small business, is it because it's only six months old? To me, that we wouldn't even take that on, right? Because it's too much risk for the buyer. And we don't want to put a buyer in that situation because not only is it small, but it's very, very young, has no track record. Uh, and, and, and with all of that comes a lot of risk. What's it built on? And why are you trying to sell it after six months? That's not good. So we don't even touch those. We look for our goal is a minimum of 24 months old and $250,000 in value. We'll dip below the value and we'll dip a little bit below the 24 months. But it's and it's buyers that dictate, dictate that 24 months, not us. They tell us, okay, we're not going to punish you in terms of the value if it's at 24 months. But if it's 18 months, it's getting a little young and we're going we're gonna to take a little off the value in terms of the multiple because of the age. That's the risk factor there. Well, it's also probably going to make it a lot harder if they're not bringing all the cash themselves. So if they're going through any kind of uh, you know financing or loan situation, um, you know I, I suppose the institutional uh, investors here, the, these aggregators, you know, might have more cash on hand, might, might you know venture capital, what have you. But uh, you know, if we're talking about more of a mom and pop purchase, probably going through SBA loans. 
Yeah, still. no, you're going to have a couple of years worth of tax returns at a minimum there. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's going to be real hard. So I think, you know, the, who the buyer, <laughs> you're going to limit uh, who your potential buyers are right then and there. Uh, nobody's going to give a loan on, you know, it's just like anything else. You know, if if that business would have a hard time going to the bank for that loan, uh, the people trying to buy that business are going to have a similar challenge. And yeah. going back to some of that ambition to sell, um, most of the people that you run into, is it that they're sort of retiring out of the business? Is it that they've just hit a plateau? They've achieved what they feel like they, they're comfortable with or can? Um, is it, you know, people that, really did build quickly with the the intent of exiting and you know maybe they need help with, with that but uh, but that they you know th- this isn't they're motivated to sell they're not motivated to run this business for another 10 20 years right and and generally that's the case they're not necessarily retiring and never working again they've just reached their level of comfort. They know, there's a story in the book, a guy named Johnny. Uh, Johnny uh, grew his business to $20 million a year in revenue. And he was exceptional at doing that. He knew he could do that and do it incredibly well. What he also knew though, was that the business in the right hands could grow to a hundred million in revenue, but it was going to take certain resources and, you know, somebody, a factory in China, separate factory in China and locations and, and more staff than he wanted to have. And he knew that that wasn't going to fit in with his life. And so he listed his business for sale, but he actually did it with the goal of doing what's called an equity role, R-O-L-L, not R-O-L-E. So he was going to sell his business and he did sell his business. He put a value on it and sold 75% of that value. And the other 25% was an equity role into the new company because he believed in the buyer and believed that the business could get to hundred million. And he'll have a second exit someday. He doesn't have to run the business. He's not grinding it out every day anymore. He's, you know, kind of on the board, strategic advisor and touches base, you know, every, every quarter. But eventually he'll have a second exit. And that second exit will probably be larger. That, that happens occasionally, but most people, they just, unfortunately, this is what happens with most people is they just wake up and they're tired. They feel like they're over leveraged and they say, I'm done. I need to move on. Uh, how what, how do I sell this? Can I sell this? I'm ready. I want to sell my business. They don't they don't run the business with the goal of exiting. They don't position it that way. They don't plan for it. They don't, as I call it, train for it in the book. They just wake up and decide to sell, which generally means they're not going to get maximum value for it. So I'm trying very hard to get through the people that I can get through to to get them to do certain things in their business to make it a more valuable business for them. And that actually, if they can create a great business that is really going to be in a, a, you know, a great value for a great buyer to take over, they're actually going to enjoy running the business more. It's a better business and they're enjoying it more. So they may take it a little further. And as they take it a little further, it becomes more valuable for them and their family when they do eventually exit it. Yeah. And from what I read, it sounded like a lot of the challenges that, uh, that these businesses run into they don't have the right team assembled uh, for bookkeeping, accounting, uh, you know, trying to get through the exit in terms of, you know, brokers and advisors and, um, and uh, you know, even on the legal side, you know, attorneys to structure things properly to, to advise well to make sure that, that that all goes smoothly. Um, I, I notice a lot of focus on bookkeepers and that, uh, you know, 
it's amazing how many businesses haven't really set up their profit and loss statements, <laughs> the PLs, yeah. uh, to be ready for acquisition. That certainly, you know, people want to be able to see a history if they want to buy the business, a history of success yeah. uh, and, and profitability. And if you can't establish that in a verifiable way, that is really going to uh, really, really going to tamp down any good, strong possibility there. Yeah, yeah. I call it. I think it's a chapter I call you know what buyers want, and within that chapter, I talk about the four pillars. And buyers historically have looked at risk, growth, transferability, and documentation. We've just formalized it, right? And under each pillar, I talk about six different functions. And when you get to the last one, documentation, suffice it to say, if you don't have a P&L on a monthly basis that we can look at, we can't really place a value on your business. There's a company out there called uh, Centurica, C-E-N-T-U-R-I-C-A. They're a due diligence firm. And uh, Chris, the owner of that, we're friends with him now. We've referred a lot of business over to them. And he says the, you know, the simplest way to tell that somebody's hiding something is if you're only if able to get quarterly or annual P&Ls, right? We will not list a business for sale unless we get a monthly view of the P&Ls exported to Excel from your accounting software. And generally, it's QuickBooks or zero. My advice is you're not a bookkeeper. You're an entrepreneur. Just do what you do and outsource the bookkeeping to an e-commerce bookkeeping firm. And that, again, can be content SaaS service, whatever it is business that you have. But these guys are experts at what they do. They'll do it well. They'll do it right so that you get a report on a monthly basis that shows you how your business is doing. You'll be able to identify some things where you might be making some mistakes or wasting some money. And if a client that uh, he... Because he outsourced it and because he had reports presented to him on in detail on a monthly basis, he, and this is a very large business, by the way, but he, he kept looking at the shipping and the freight and going, what, what's going on here? And in one month, compared to a year ago, the cost was like $500,000 more. And it wasn't because of volume. It was just strange. Turns out that they were calculating it wrong and somebody was charging the wrong rate. And because he caught it, they saved an awful lot of money on a monthly basis. And this is the way he presented it. But the reality, when he goes to exit the business, you know, a half a million dollars annualized is, you know, $6 million. $6 million times that his business was probably worth eight times. That's nearly $48 million in value to his business. So when you have the documentation right, whether you're a $5 million business, a half a million dollar business, or a $50 million business, you got to have that right in order first to see the details of your business to understand the strengths and weaknesses of it financially, but also so an advisor can help you firm up your discretionary earnings, as it's called, and see how close or how far you are to your exit goal. And you've got to have an exit goal in dollars, in date, in feelings, things of that nature, in order to uh, sort of march to it. Right. That's the first thing that I'll teach people. It's, it's it's pretty simple, right? Set a goal. Okay, I want to sell my business for a million bucks. No, that's not a goal. I want to sell it for a million dollars in the first quarter of you know 2023, and I'm going to feel unburdened because I'm out of debt. My kids' college is paid for, and I can spend more time with my family. That is a goal, right? That's the first step. But then you got to reverse engineer a path to that and calculate your 
sell those discretionary earnings and understand what the value of your business is today. That way you know how close or far you are from that. And you can't do that without proper financial documentation. So that's really the first thing that if people are not doing it, the first thing I'll do is teach them that and connect them with e-commerce bookkeepers to help them with it. Interesting. And you know, you've got the, what's called the, I'll refer to it as raw profitability of the business. So cost of goods, you know, cost of, you know, overhead, you know, you, you understand your, your gross revenue, you understand your net, um, you know, you're able to see what's left, uh, you know, you understand your, your profits and your losses. But there are other other components of the business that have value as well. And so, you know, there's inventory for a lot of these businesses. Um, there are other uh, other benefits that the owner generates from the business. Um, how does all that factor into the valuation and any multiples, anything like that from your yeah. experience? So first in those four pillars and uh, you know, what buyers want, you're going to look at risk, right? And you're going to look at not just the total revenue of the company, the age of the company, those are definitely, um, you know, fall under the risk category, but you're going to look, narrow it down and go, okay, uh, how many channels of revenue do you have? You know, do you have your own website? Do you sell direct to businesses? Do you sell on third-party platforms like Walmart and Shop, uh, uh, Amazon, things of that nature? Do you have multiple channels of revenue? Or do you just have one and is it a third-party platform where you don't own the customer, right? Much more risk if you only sell on Amazon and you don't own the customer versus if you sell on your own website. Amazon can displace you overnight with (laughs) their own uh, white-labeled products or another seller can come in or you can just get kicked off the platform summarily without a lot of good reason and have to duke it out with their their different customer service or, you know, merchant. Sure, and then and, and then you can narrow it down to even if you're on multiple platforms, do you only have one product? Are you a, a hero skew company? That's a risk as well. Or if you're a service agency, do you and you have you know a uh, uh, hundred subscribers or hundred clients, but seventy of them are within one company, and it's the individual employees. That's a risk as well. So buyers going to look at all those aspects of risk, and those things come into the valuation pretty dramatically. Calculating your seller's discretionary earnings, which is what the multiple is applied to, to determine the total value of your company, is you know maybe ten percent of it. The rest of the value and where it falls in a range is 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 that risk, the growth trends, the growth opportunities, what you've launched for products or services or SKUs in the last twelve months. And then the transferability of the business. Is it easy? Is it incredibly hard? Can it even transfer? And then the documentation. That's all the other, you know, 80 to 90% that comes into that valuation. It's interesting. And, you know, everyone always wants to focus on the multiple. Um, you know, tech companies sometimes see 10x, 20x multiples, you know, that they're uh, they've got a lot of growth potential, um, you know, and high profitability in, in so many of these cases. Uh then again, you know, when you're dealing with, let's say, an agency that, you know, that's building websites uh, or, you know, some other spectrum of, of the industry, you know, maybe they they're more likely to see, uh, you know, something in the single digits and the low single digits because they have to keep selling new clients, new work all the time. It's not quite as as recurring a business model. Uh, it's not exactly subscription based for for many of these 
Um, and so it's harder to prove out, you know, what the future revenue is because you've always got to be selling just as hard as you were last month. Um, where do these e-commerce brands fit in? And, and, uh, you know, and, and I mean, <laughs> I should, should preface, you know, is anything that I just said, you know, uh, uh fallen out of, uh, alignment with your yeah. way of looking at it? Great question. So, I, you know, so many people, as you said, want to focus on the multiple. And I get that question a lot. What what are what multiple are businesses selling for these days? Whether it's a physical product, e-commerce brand, or a content or SaaS, what, that's one of the first questions they'll ask. And, you know, I'm from the Northeast as you are, and I just want to be that wise guy and say, multiple of what? Right? Because they don't understand multiple of what they're just hearing the water cooler talk that things are selling for a certain multiple and so the first thing you really want to do is understand how valuations are done and in the sub 25 million dollar range whether you are a physical products business e-commerce as people call it SaaS content service you are going to be sold as a multiple of sellers discretionary earnings or sde now, how the hell do you calculate SDE? You run that profit and loss statement in QuickBooks or zero and export it to Excel. And the bottom line, you're going to get net income, right? That's not SDE. Because if you're a owner-operator business and your net income is zero, but you pay yourself a half a million dollars a year, your business is not worth four times of zero. That half a million dollars a year salary is what's called an add back, as are the cash back monies that you put in your pocket as are your mobile phone is an ad back, uh, as is a, a lot of different things. There's an entire chapter devoted to ad backs. It's the most missed thing that people uh, screw up on when they're selling their business on their own. They don't do a proper ad back schedule. So you're going to get that net income. And then you're the, net, the formula is simply net income plus ad backs equals seller's discretionary earnings. So it's a multiple of seller's discretionary earnings. But the biggest mistake people make is they don't focus on the ad backs and they lose tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in the value of their business when they sell it, either with a poor advisor or on their own. Now reverse this and say, well, okay, should this, should, is this book just for online sellers? And the answer is no. If you're buying a business and you want to know whether you can get instant equity in the business that you're buying, you can look at the P&L and pick out what potential ad backs are missed. And somebody might not have done an ad back of, let's say, the cashback money that they get every year. And if they get $20,000 in cashback money every year, but they didn't put it in the ad back schedule and the business is selling for four times, that's $80,000 of instant equity that you're getting as a buyer. As a seller, you screwed up. You're giving away $80,000. My son goes to NC State. You know, that's what? Two and a half years worth of tuition paid for, right? But every little dollar counts. And there's, you know, I call it three different levels of ad backs that you get to focus in on in that. And there's six levels below each. There's about 18 different things that you can focus on. And, and so it's not just a what, what multiple of things selling for, but it's a multiple of what? Calculate that properly. And then you can get into the, the, the multiples and valuation, things of that nature. Absolutely. And look, you know, just like selling a house, there are expenses that you go through in the process. In the case of something like this, uh, you know, you're likely to have to pay the IRS. <laughs> and uh, There's other expenses there. You definitely want to get what you're entitled to, what uh, what you're able to out of the process. Just like, you know, if you had a couple of eyesores in your house that you'd probably fix them up before 
putting the house on the market. I would think the same here that, if, you know, if you've got a few things that you can <laughs> clean up, have those uh, have those ad backs and other yeah, things. And, and that's why you don't want, that's why yeah. you don't want to wake up and decide to sell your business and, OK, I'm done. I'm toast. Let's move on. Because then you can't, you know, you can't repaint the house. You can't change the carpeting or put in hardwood floors. It's too late. Because you're done, you're emotionally toasted and you need to move on. Well, and, and if you wait and you plateau or the uh, you know sales, revenue, what have you, if, if metrics start to go on a downward spiral, there goes that multiple right there. There goes that buyer interest. Nobody wants to buy a business on a downswing unless it's a fire sale and they're getting a really good price. Right. And once you start uh, to, uh, if you've had strong growth year over year and you plateau or trend down, immediately your multiple is going to go down. Not only is your discretionary earnings probably going to go down a little bit as well, but your multiple is going to go down because it's not, you know, seeing that same growth every year. And there's so many different things that you can think about. You know, let me me give you one more example of an ad back that is just, it doesn't really register with people when they're selling their business. Let's say that you, you know, um, redesign your website in the last 12 months. Okay. But you spent 10 grand redesigning the website that for most people, they would think, well, that's a business expense. That's not an ad back. And I would say, I would argue correctly with math and logic that, okay, you, you only redesign the website every three years. So that $10,000 expense in the trailing 12 months is not going to carry forward to next year. You redesign the site every three years. So you can take that 10,000 and divide it by three. You can do an ad back for two thirds of that 10,000 or 6,600 bucks roughly and, and do it. And that's an ad back, a black and white mathematical and logical ad back of $6,600 times, again, let's say four times, three times, whatever it is, it's going to add eighteen to $24,000 to the list price of your business legitimate black and white, it makes sense type of ad back. You can't get gray and do fuzzy math because that's going to destroy trust. But you have to slow down and pay attention to those things in order to get the real value of what you've built for years, what is likely your most valuable asset. If you rush through the process and you don't get educated, you don't train for it, you're not going to get what it's really worth. And that is going to cost you money. Is real dollars. You've worked really hard to build this business. And you know, you may not be selling for another five years, but when you start to learn about the value of what you're building, you'll build a better business to be more enjoyable to run. And you know that you've got a goal in mind. And when you've got a goal in mind, those really tough days that we all have as entrepreneurs get a little easier. You're like, that's okay. I'll get, I'll, go, I'll get over this pothole through that hurdle, whatever it is, and, and I'll keep marching towards that exit goal. Because you can do that because you've got that goal. If you didn't have the goal, you're just on a treadmill spinning around and around and around. Very frustrating and exhausting. And in terms of outside of things that that I would assume that you can put um, a more direct value on, uh, some of the makeup of the business itself. So whether it's B2B or B2C, whether it has particularly unique products or some or other unique facets about it. Um, that are harder for others to, to replicate, whether it, um, uh, I'll say, w- whether it has frequent purchases, whether there's a lot of loyalty. And so there's that customer lifetime value, um, as opposed to, I don't I always say things like selling mattresses that people won't buy again for many years. 
do those things play a, a big role in the valuation or is that sometimes absolutely. just more about the, you know, the, I guess no, the, absolutely the buyer play. interest? Yeah, absolutely. So I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who's got two patents. He's got multiple products and on two of them, uh, he, has, he has two uh, uh, utility patents. Very defensible, right? Very defensible means lower risk. Lower risk means higher value. Absolutely. It brings more value when you have those things. On the uh, recurring revenue aspect of it, odds are if you've got you know, a, a, a subscription service, whether it's a product or a service, you're, you're tracking that on a monthly basis. And you can tell that in July of this year, you know, you've got uh, you know, 17% of your total revenue is recurring. As opposed to July of last year, it was only 12%. So you're seeing an increase. Buyers love recurring revenue. Right? It's 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 money that just simply shows up every month if you take care of that customer. Right? It's predictable. Mm-hmm. You know what's coming in, and that's much more attractive as you know selling mattresses online would be. There's no question about it. Buyers love that those types of things. So all of those little details play into the value of the business. Now I can't tell you that because you've got recurring revenue, we're going to add an extra half multiple to your business. What I can tell you though is because you have recurring revenue in the value range, a multiple range of, you know, call it two and a half to four and a half, you're going to get pushed towards the higher end of it instead of the lower end of it. If you have only one SKU and it's all one-off sales and you're only 18 months old, you're going to be on the lower end of that multiple range. But when you're defensible, you've got recurring revenue and strengths of the business to just make it much more attractive to a buyer, you're going to get pushed to the higher end of that value range. Yeah, you know, as you're trying to get everything in order, I know that you know one of the things that I've seen happen time and again. You work to tighten up the, those P and L statements, and not just getting them correct, <laughs> but you look to see where can we trim the fat so that you know if we're getting ready for acquisition, we want people to see the maximum possible profit being churned out of the business, and so maybe we'll focus a little less on this or that, that was more discretionary in spending uh, in order to shore up the books a little bit to be cleaner. Um, have, have you seen that you know, work both for and against businesses? You know, if they don't get an acquisition quickly, can they sometimes overdo it and sort of stunt their own growth or put themselves in, into a, a tough position that way? Yeah, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that if you're trying to tighten things up in the 12 months prior to selling. The wrong way is to cut back on your ad spend because you're just going to cut back and save $5,000 a month in the last three months um, because that's going to catch up to you or actually it's going to catch up to the buyer of the business. And they'll see year over year that your ad spend in the last three months is much lower than it was prior. And that means you're just cutting expenses to boost your discretionary earnings. And it's going to hurt the business in the long run. If you weren't selling the business, you wouldn't do that. That's the wrong way of doing it. The right way of doing it is if you uh, pay your beloved brother-in-law to do customer service, uh, and you overpay him, let's say you pay him $30,000 a year to do customer service for you know, 10 hours a week, and most of those you know, responses in that 10-hour week are canned responses, you should fire your beloved brother-in-law, right? Uh, I'd say three to six months prior and replace that person with uh, a VA 
that you know is getting paid five to ten dollars an hour. They're very good at very what they do. Educated, uh, outsourced, easy easy to transfer with a business. So not only are you going to save, let's say it's twenty thousand dollars a year, and you do an adjustment in the ad back schedule for prior to when you fired your brother in law. Um, too much detail to go in a, into in a podcast, but it works. Um, but you know, not only are you saving the money there, but then if it's a twenty thousand dollar gap, that again times three or four is adding sixty to eighty thousand dollars to the list price of the business, and it makes it more transferable, right? If I'm buying your business, Robert, yeah, that and, virtual assistant is going to come right along with it. Where my brother-in-law, <laughs> right? He's working for you because you know he loves you, yeah. right? And he's helping take care of his 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 sister, right, or whatever it is. Whereas you know he may not want to work for me. And if he's a key employee, let's just say he's not a customer service person. If he's a key employee that is still overpaid, but also a brother-in-law or brother, after the sale, he may not want to stick around, and that raises my risk and makes the business less transferable. So you need to think of those things in advance of selling and put the business in a position um, that's going to be, you know, it's going to be great for a buyer to take over. Not just think about selling the business for the maximum value you can because that's what you want. When you think about the buyer, you're going to achieve both things. You're going to sell it for maximum value because the buyer's really going to love what you built. They're going to trust you and they're going to pay you more for the business. And then it's going to be easier to transfer at the end of the day as well. You're not going to have to stick around for as long in the training and transition period. It's going to really work out for everybody if you pay attention to the business and focus on building a better business for the buyer. So from the time that the the business is ready to go up on the, I'll call it the auction block, but from the time it's ready for listing, uh, how long does the process for an average, I know that you know each one is going to be different, but yeah. Uh, you know, how long does it usually take to get through um, what I'll refer to as the advertising period of of circulating uh, this new listing and getting bids and getting through, uh, you know, once you accept the bid, getting through any additional due diligence and, and closing on the sale? Do these things sometimes happen in a few weeks? Is it usually a few months? Well, if we're talking about the median, yeah, you know that that's that's really the real number. Uh, year to date in 2021, it's been 89 days. Okay, so that's from the time the business is listed for sale to the time that money changes hand, meaning meaning the business is closed and the new owner takes over. 89 days. Now that median number includes. In our situation at Quiet Light, some list some businesses that are 15, 20, 25 million dollars, which naturally are going to take longer than the 500,000 million, two million dollar listings. Um, it, it's it's not going to happen in 10 days, though. I can tell you that right now. It shouldn't happen in 10 days because you know, no matter the size of the business, you know, both parties should have a, an attorney involved. Once you're under letter of intent, you don't need one before that, but once you're under letter of intent, um, you, you engage an attorney so that, you know, partway through due diligence, if you're feeling good about each party's feeling good about it, you know, a, uh, you know, the asset purchase agreement, the contract to sell the business can be drafted and worked on, you know, that that's, that's a necessity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it, yeah. you can't really do that well in 10 days because unfortunately attorneys take vacations and they have lives and it, it, there's some back and forth there and you've got to allow some time for that as well. 
And there's back and forth. There's redlining of these agreements in many cases, and you're not necessarily going to just you know get through it in a day. Uh, that no. would be lovely, but yeah, I, you know, no, we, I, I, we, everyone's trying to protect themselves in these situations. Yeah, it's it's funny. You know, there's there's one attorney firm that uh, we work with often. We work with many often, but there's one in particular that I see them on both the buy side, and then I see them on the sell side. And they fight for they fight tooth and nail for certain things on the buy side, and then they fight the opposite things on the sell side. So it's just a process in a game, and then you know it, it has to be, you know, a, a balanced document that is safe and secure for all parties involved, and and can't be one sided. And so uh, the piece of advice that I give anyone that is thinking about selling or buying an online business when it comes to attorneys is. In no way, shape, or form should your attorney be your mother, father, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, cousin, in-law, or anything like that, because they're going to fight like rabid dogs for things that just don't matter. If it's one-tenth or one percent chance of happening, then you got to balance that with you know that risk with you know fighting and, and potentially having your buyer walk away, which I've seen happen, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and I would say that I think it's also about some of those... Um, some of those fringe things that come up in some of these agreements. So, for example, if there are contingencies in the uh, in the buyout, um, you know, where the the, the seller isn't going to get all the money up front, um, you've got to be really careful. At that point, you're not in control, <laughs> and, you know. So you have to, you know, you don't, you never know who you're selling to the way that you think you do or want to. Um, but at that point. You know, you might have some kind of a, an agreement to stay on in there. You might have contingencies that the business has to, um, you know, has to perform in certain ways in order yeah. to to achieve certain things. You might, you know, be structured to get some monies later down the line. You know, you've got to make sure that if you know that things are properly guaranteed by uh, the seller. I, I was, you know, I, I've experienced some of these things firsthand, but. Um, you know, reading the book, there were some interesting refreshers for me. Uh, there are these things that, that come up. And obviously, it's nice when everything's just a simple, whether it's cash or whether it's cash that comes through a loan, but it's nice when everything's funded and you're done. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and you and you hand over the keys and you walk away. Not always the case. And anytime that you're getting into anything where, you know, where, where you're handing over the keys, but you've still got some rights or responsibilities. I, I you really want to, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's. I'd say the same anytime that you're throwing in any kind of uh, non-competes or anything like that. This is how you've earned your living for a good chunk of time. So you really want to understand what the commitments that you're making are and, you know, how you're going to continue to operate not only... Um, not only financially uh, well, but I think, you know, mentally and physically well. This is what you've devoted yourself to for a period of time. Sometimes, you know, you might want to do something in a different area of that industry uh, or in a different, you know, to a different segment or community or what have you. You know, so I find that those things sometimes, you know, I, I don't know, Joe, if you run into those sorts of things, but I think that that's where for some of the entrepreneurs that are, that are trying to sell that I worry for them more. It's the devil's always in the details. Contracts are contracts. Yeah, the, the, I'll be honest. The, the non-compete is is a non-issue in most cases, right? So, as long as you are 
not competing for the same customer, selling the same or similar product or service, you're fine, right? Nobody can deny you a living. So that's fine. The non-competes are never an issue. Uh, and when they are, we identify it up front and we don't list the business for sale because it won't sell if it's a major issue. The the deal structures, though, um, I, I think it's chapter 15 in the book. There's so many different deal structures that could come up. Uh, you need to understand what they are and how to negotiate to make sure that, as you said, afterwards, um, that you're comfortable and you can sleep at night and and make sure that you're not you know, stressing about, am I going to get paid? When am I going to get paid? I'm not going to get paid for a year and I have no idea how they're doing type of thing. You know, one example uh, with the aggregators that are buying online businesses, they're you know building up portfolios of them. They, they created a term called uh, stability payments. If you Google it, you won't find it unless it goes to my site, exitpreneur.io. Um, stability payments is something they made up. So, you know, their pitch is, and they reach out to buyers or sellers directly most often. They say, hey, look, we're, we love your business. We're, we're uh, you know, cash buyers. We close in 30 days. Let's talk. Well, they don't actually pay you all cash. <laughs> so they might pay you, you know, let's say you negotiate a deal, it's a million bucks, but they're going to hold back 20% as a stability payment. And the terms of that aren't bad on the surface. It's, look, as long as the business is doing 90% of what it was at closing, 12 months out, we'll pay you that 20%. It's $200,000. The problem is that they have no experience running a business such as yours. Uh, they have a lot of money. They're well-funded. They're well-educated. And they, they're charming. So they're like, very likable. But they may not have the actual direct experience running a business like yours. Well, they I, may say they hired the right people. Well, And they're good at math. So let's assume that someone isn't... Um, isn't who I want. I hope that they are in the acquisition process, and they're sitting somewhere, you know, projecting around ninety-one or ninety-two percent uh, of the revenue. It's pretty easy to adjust things so that you hit the eighty-nine percent and save that that final payment on it. I don't think that most people try to run a business that way, but I've seen stranger things happen um, yeah. in the real world. Yeah, well, you know, so I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I always worry about that. Yeah. I, I would I would focus more on what if they just simply screw up and they run out of inventory yeah. three weeks prior to that 12-month mark and instead of being at 91, they're at 89 or 89.99. And for one-tenth of a point, you lose $200,000. Therefore, we talk about that particular scenario in chapter 15 where we say, look, if you're going to accept the stability payment, you've got to do it on a sliding scale. So if you're at 90% or above, or 90% to 100%, you're going to get that 200000 If it's 80 to 90% or just below, you're going to get 150000 If it's 70 to 80, you're going to get 100000 so on and so forth. So you've got to have that in there because they might screw up and, and you have no control over it. The other thing that you want to have is access to third-party reports. You want to you want to know how they're doing throughout the year. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to log in and see what the see what their revenue looks like, or require that they send you a monthly top-end revenue report, uh, so that you can sleep better at night to see whether or not you're going to install that pool with the money that's coming in and the likelihood of that money coming in. That kind of thing that, that yeah, helps well. you sleep better at night. Absolutely. I live in South Florida where, you know, hurricane comes through, businesses shut down for a period of time, you lose some revenue. That's, you know, that's cost of, of business. You can't predict you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, as the new owners of the business, you expect people to take certain risk on, you know, they're 
they own the business, uh, you definitely want to do your best to protect, uh, you know, your exit from my perspective. Uh, you know, speak, do you run into any common themes um, with the those, you know, fringe cases where a deal falls through, where from the time of a letter of intent, things don't work out? Um, you know, especially with the folks that you deal with that ideally by that point, their books are in order, you know, you've already done a lot of that, that vetting and, uh, and addressed, you know, things so that they're properly priced and, uh, and they should hopefully be in good shape. Are there things that typically get in the way? Is it, you know, sometimes that the sellers really just aren't ready to let go or, you know, something that you run into? Yeah. Once you're under a letter of intent. It happens occasionally that a seller changes their mind, and that's okay, unless it's a, a binding letter of intent. Most are non-binding. Um, and if the buyer changes the deal in any way, shape, or form, you can walk away regardless. Um, but you know, most of the transactions are, are going to go through at the letter of intent purchase price, unless there's an adjustment that is, again, math and logic-oriented. If you calculated, you know, $100,000 in discretionary earnings, but your bookkeeper screwed up or something or other, and you're off by 3000 and it's caught in due diligence. The deal doesn't fall apart. It's just the deal gets adjusted. So, you know, you, you're under LOI at a three-time multiple. So, three times 3000 you reduce the price by $9,000. Math and logic, no motion in there whatsoever. But when deals do fall apart, uh, it's generally because in due diligence, during that time period, uh, you know, there's always a, a, from the time a business is listed. So we're, we're recording this in mid-August. So I don't have August revenues in the PL, right? So it looks great through July. We go under LOI at the end of this month. In September, we're in due diligence. And then I get August numbers. And August numbers are 30% below last year. What happened? You didn't run out of inventory. It's just that competition came in and business is looking really bad. It fell off a cliff, right? And that makes me really nervous as a buyer. So I'm out. That's usually why something will fall through. Um, I have been in situations though where I've had a seller that had a deal under under a contract for five million bucks. And I'm driving home on a Saturday afternoon from a funeral. Sad day. And then this client calls me. Nobody calls me on a Saturday, right? And, uh, you know, he gets nervous and he's like, Joe, um, I wanted to talk to you. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? Let's call him Victor. He said, well, I don't know if I can do this deal. I said, okay, it's your business. Well, what's, what's the situation? I did $300,000 in profit last month. Like, wow. Okay. That's up dramatically. He's going to continue. And we talked through the process and, you know, it turned out that really if he, you know, we determined that if he waited about six months, the business was worth at least $8 million versus the five. And he was willing to take that risk. And he was in a non-binding letter of intent. So we pulled the transaction. And oddly enough, we didn't have to wait six months. Within about three weeks, that same buyer and two others bid the price of the business up to 8.75 million. So yes, that one fell apart in due diligence because the seller said, I don't want to sell. But it was such a strong reason for not selling that buyers jump through hoops and he ended up getting 3.75 more million for the business. So it does happen. But the majority of the time, and I want to say like 95% of the time, once you're under letter of intent, you're going to close and you're going to close at the purchase price that's in the letter of intent. 
if you've done a good job preparing the business for sale. If you have fuzzy math in your numbers and it's not caught and you know, with the advisor that's listing the business, then you might be on more shaky ground. You know, if you just do some gray stuff and don't really use full math and logic and do some fuzzy ad backs. If you do that, then yeah, get nervous. But if you don't do that and you do it right, you have nothing to be nervous about. Yeah. And you know, we've really focused on the business owners and selling the business from the buying perspective. You know, sometimes you reach that plateau and you're not sure how you're going to grow your business. You've got these competitors, you know, there's these other things out there. You know, one way to grow is to buy up a competitor (laughs) or two or however many um, and to, you know, get the benefits of that. Uh, from the other side of the equation, do you have any strong advice for folks that might be interested in in actually acquiring businesses and growing through that uh, through that model? Yeah. So think of this. You know, the book is called the Exitpreneur's Playbook. So it's a playbook for people that are selling their online businesses. Think about it in regard to sports. That uh, you know the uh, New York Jets. He's from New York, folks, and I'm from New England, so I'm going to go with the Patriots, right? So let's say that these two competing teams are about to play a game, and the Patriots playbook becomes available to the Jets, and you know what Brady's going to do with all of the different plays and how he's going to run them, and you hear them called out, and you're like, no problem. I can defend against that. I know what you're going to do. I understand your plays. Therefore, I'm in a better position to win. The same thing applies here. This is a playbook that I wrote for sellers, but the buyers that are out there trying to buy online businesses should be reading it as well, because it's going to give you insight into what the sellers are doing, how they're building their businesses and how they're running their plays. And you can then look at this business with all of that in mind and know if it's a good purchase or not. Um, you know, are they missing ad backs? Do they have too many ad backs in there? Is that ad back that they put in there not an ad back at all? Is it a hero skew business? And what's the risk associated with that? How to identify those types of things? It's all there. And I think it's written for sellers, but it's a secret playbook for buyers as well. And it's, I, I honestly, I think this, the sad thing about this world that we live in is that I think Buyers will digest this more so than sellers because they're about to put their money on the line. They're about to spend a million bucks and this is a total playbook. They're going to see the, the Patriots you know, playbook and they're going to buy that book because they want to protect their investment. And that's kind of sad to me and frustrating in some ways because I can't get through to as many sellers as I want because they're like, yeah, I got this. This is what we do as entrepreneurs. I've got that affliction. How many times have I said, I got this and, and really didn't train for it? And I didn't, you know, I'm halfway through that race and actually, uh, you know, I actually did this in a 5K. I just woke up and decided to run it because my kids were running it. And I said, I got this. And I was in halfway decent shape. And literally halfway through the race, I get passed by two women, which is not remarkable in any way, shape or form, except that they were pushing strollers. I'm like, yeah, I guess I don't got this anymore, (laughs) you know? And that's what happens when people just wake up and decide to sell their business. They don't got this. So 
I want them to prepare. I want them to train. I want them to have the best exit possible. And I want them not to say, I got this. And I want them to learn what they can do. And it's a book. It's $18. You know, um, I give away free chapters because I've always said, if I could just give it away for free, I would. So at exitpreneur.io, when you click the buy the book button, there's free chapter options. I give away the intro and three chapters. The three most important chapters. You can read those and not buy the rest of not read the rest of the book if you want. Um, but it's definitely there for buyers. And I wish I could get through to every online seller. That's the point of doing podcasting, so we can educate and talk to people about this. But your business is very likely your most valuable asset. So why not protect it? Why not train for that exit? The truth of the matter is that when you sell your business, at least 50% for most businesses, at least 50% of all the money you're ever going to make from the business comes on the day you sell. So you should not wake up and decide to sell. You should train for that. You should get the explanation playbook and get ready for it so you can build a better business that you'll enjoy running more and it'll be there for a great buyer to take over at a great price. Awesome. Well, Joe, I really appreciate all of your time. Uh, this was educational. I, and uh, I'm sure that, that our listeners and viewers are, are really going to have appreciated tuning in for this one. I will be sure to share that link in the show notes for anyone that's uh, who's trying to get at those free chapters or anything or um, that has $18 to spend. And, um, you know, and I appreciate the, the copy that you sent me. Um, I, I certainly enjoyed reading through it. Um, to those listeners, as always, thanks for tuning in. Stay safe, stay healthy, happy selling out there, and uh, <laughs> and keep working on that business so that uh, you know you get that that nice retirement or you get to take on that next challenge like you're looking for. Thanks for listening to the Jet Rails podcast. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We also post full videos of most episodes on the Jet Rails YouTube and Facebook channels. You can find links at jetrails.com forward slash podcast. Have questions about an episode? Is there a topic you'd like us to cover in the future? We're at JetRails on LinkedIn and Twitter. Do you want to sponsor this podcast? Sorry, but we're committed to ad-free listening. We are, however, always looking for guests that our listeners will benefit from. And don't forget to like the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. It's a small ask, but it's a big help. We appreciate it, and more importantly, we appreciate you.